Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Michelle Arevalo Carpenter, Executive Director of Strategy and Content at Sokap Global. This podcast series is hosted by Sokap Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. Sokap Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed in the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. You'll hear conversations like this at SOCAP 23, our flagship event held in October 23 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, MONEYMEANING23. Registered at SoCAPGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. For this episode, we will discuss how the most effective social impact strategies are ones that indigenize the world and empower indigenous women. However, indigenous women in the United States and Canada face the highest rates of murder, disappearances, suicide, and sexual and domestic violence. This Money and Meaning episode features an interview format session at SOCAP22 with Trisha Ettinger, Shelley Buffalo, and Sekoas Nobis of the Great Plains Action Society. They discuss how the private sector can move toward a more just and regenerative economy by recognizing, trusting, and investing in the work of Indigenous women. They also call for action to the end of missing and murder Indigenous women crisis. This is a powerful, thought-provoking discussion of impactful topics. Uh, Tansi, um, hello. My name is Sakawa Snobis, and I'm Plains Cree Salto of the George Gordon First Nation, which is in Saskatchewan, Canada. And I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, not too far from there. And I've been living in Iowa City for 17 years. Um, and I am the executive director of uh, Great Plains Action Society, a 100% indigenous-led and run uh, Nonprofit uh, working through Iowa and eastern Nebraska and the Great Plains in general and even nationally um, on climate and uh, social justice issues. Um, and I want to say thank you for being here with us first thing this morning and also for uh, dealing with the change of venue. Uh, I appreciate that they put us in here. This is nice. It's better than the hallway. So, <laughs> um, so. Yeah, again, thank you for being with us uh, as we discuss why it's important to invest in the grassroots work that will end the missing and murdered indigenous woman crisis, also known as the um, missing murdered indigenous relatives crisis, um, so we can protect one of the most valuable resources on the planet, which is indigenous knowledge and practices. Um, Our session today is going to take uh, the form of an interview, uh, and uh, we'll be. We're, I'm here today with Trisha Ottringer, uh, who is Ho Chunk and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Director at Great Plains Action Society, and with Shelley Buffalo. 
who is Meskwaki and a decolonial pathfinder and who has coordinated the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative and a seed keeper who has collaborated on seed rematriation projects. And um, rematriation, if you don't know, is uh, the giving back of something uh, to Indigenous communities. Um, so um, for our panel today, I'm going to do a pretty hefty introduction. Basically, I'm just going to read to you um, what um, I, we want to get through um, to everybody today in this panel. And then we're going to go into um, our interview. So uh, give me one second here. Um, so uh, during the, the climate emergency and increased social injustice, humanity needs a worldwide shift in consciousness that will move the global market economy from extractive to regenerative. Worldwide government, governments and imperialist corporations have little to no interest in uplifting indigenous land stewardship and traditional ecological knowledge so we can respond to the climate emergency, poverty and ongoing systemic inequities. Indigenous peoples everywhere have told imperialist colonizers time and again that their extractive mindset would lead to all of our demise. On Turtle Island, it has taken 500 years for settler invaders to heed the warnings of indigenous people and still fewer listening. However, activists, pundits, and experts like Noam Chomsky, Project Drawdown, and David Suzuki are telling the world that indigenous peoples have answers and hopefully more will listen to us. I'm a mouse person and I don't have room for a mouse here. <laughs> so I'm having trouble. Just give me a minute. Um, there is an essential need to actualize indigenous people's socioeconomic and holistic worldviews. Indigenous visionaries and culture bearers need to be heard so we can usher in a regenerative economy. This can be done if changemakers turn to indigenous peoples, in particular, indigenous women. Um, in particular, Indigenous women. Social impact economics needs more investors to decolonize their giving strategy and trust that Indigenous peoples have the ability to make real change with these investments. An overlooked strategy is one that has over 500 years ever demonstrated resilience and impact, that of Indigenous women. Indigenous women are the walking embodiment of a social impact strategy as they have successfully navigated through hundreds of years of oppression and environmental crises with such great strength and intelligence. The social impact community can curtail their efforts to change the colonial capitalist economy simply by recognizing, trusting, and investing in the ongoing work of Indigenous women because our viewpoint alone is a necessary step forward. As I stated earlier, Project Drawdown has stated that giving power and resources back to Indigenous women is one way of combating the climate emergency. One of their findings tells us that the greater involvement of women in local decision-making decision -making leads to better natural resource management and uh, conservation outcomes. Studies show that gender equality, for example, a greater proportion of women in national government is strongly associated with more robust environmentalism on a national level. In other words, women in national legislatures have shown to vote more for more stringent climate and environmental protections. Among many reasons, some include the fact that more harm from environmental degradation is felt by women, and that women participate more than men in social movements. 
They've also proven that when indigenous, when indigenous women are given access to land and resources to grow food, they make an impact on the fight to curb the climate crisis. Indigenous Environmental Network has done a study that has proven that indigenous resistance has stopped or delayed greenhouse gas pollution equivalent to at least 25% of annual US and Canadian emissions. Indigenous women can help shift the global consciousness. However, so many of our women will never get there. Sorry. Um, and that's because of the intense colonial violence that they still face, which we call the missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis. And it's unfortunate, but the government has done little to end this crisis, so it's up to tribes and organizations such as ours, Great Plains Action Society, to do that work. How can we get indigenous women into change-making positions if we are facing the highest rates of murder and disappearances in the country? But we need funding to end the, mis the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis. And we are here today, and we are glad that you are here today uh, to learn more as well about this crisis from um, experts that are working in their communities right now. So uh, we had to put this panel together very last minute. Um, and that's why I'm reading to you. And that's why I'm doing such a hefty introduction um, because I don't want to put too much pressure on our panelists um, because we didn't have time to really prepare. So I'm going to get into our interview now. Uh, Trisha, yeah. um, what is the missing and murdered indigenous woman crisis? Um, first and foremost, thank you for having me here to speak about an important issue. Uh, the missing and murdered indigenous crisis is a public health crisis that has happened for over a hundred years. Um, MMIW or MMIR um, is the byproduct of colonial capitalism in which indigenous women and girls are looked at as invaluable and expendable. Due to pop culture and media, we are often looked at as over-sexualized, exotic, and uncivilized savages who are readily available for men. Therefore, we are highly targeted for sex trafficking, rings, uh, sex, sexual assault, rape, and violence, especially if you are a native woman or girl living in urbanized areas. There are little to no resources available, and if there are resources available, uh, oftentimes we find ourselves fighting for data sovereignty and red tape, uh, which takes time that we cannot waste and especially in situations that are life and death. Um, this is why we have created the outreach initiative we have so we can help and empower our communities and families now instead of waiting a true grassroots approach. Also, I just wanna know that yes, we did have little time, but again, that is more reason why you shouldn't invest in indig indigenous women because we, we put our energy, we put our, uh, our all into bringing this together. And, and to presenting this important issue. Um, I want to add a little bit to what Trish um, has uh, told everybody, and just with some statistics. Um, you know, I think there's almost 6,000 uh, missing women in the uh, National Missing Persons Database. Um, on some reservations, uh, the murder rate of uh, women um, is uh, 10 times higher than the national average. Um, some people will tell you, the Department of Justice will tell us that uh, about 56% of indigenous women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime, 
But when you talk to grassroots folks that are like living in these spaces, in these communities, sometimes that number can be as high as 80 to 90%. Um, uh, the, um, the suicide rate alone tells us something really important here. And um, basically, um, the suicide rate, and forgive me because I can't remember the years that they did this study. I believe it was done in 2009. It was a, a, a multi-year study. Um, they found that the suicide rate in a, about a 10 to 20 year span um, up to 2009 increased 139% for Indigenous women. I mean, I don't even know how to um, understand that number. Uh, it increased 71% for uh, men, and just to contextualize, for um, the rest of the um, uh, you know settler descendant country or you know uh, white uh, I guess population, um, the suicide rate had increased only thirty percent. So um, I just want you to you know to understand how severe that is. Suicide isn't happening in a vacuum; it's happening because of severe and serious um, violence that Indigenous women face every day not just in the form of physical violence, but sexual, um, even stalking, um, you know, emotional, and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, racism as well. Um, the national poverty rate in the U.S. is 12.3%, but for Indigenous peoples, the rate is as high as 25.4%. Um, on some reservations, the unemployment rate is 80%. Um, and um, furthermore, um, more than... 42.6% of households led by single Native women live below the poverty line. Indigenous women also only get paid 57 cents on the dollar compared to a white man. Um, these are all big issues. Um, I know there's more. There's more statistics um, in terms of um, uh, domestic violence, um, being murdered um, with a gun, um, those rates are extremely high uh, for Indigenous women. Uh, and I don't know anymore right now at this moment at the top of my head, but I just wanted to um, provide that background. Mm -hmm. So um, next question. Uh, Trish, what, is, what are you doing um, to combat the, <laughs> yes. this crisis? Um, so I just finished our first small, small cohort uh, of our workshop called Protect the Sacred. Uh, the workshop is focused on healing justice, self-defense, um, sex trafficking prevention, healthy relationships, consent, and even indigenous foods. Um, we were one of the 10 recipients to join in Camila Cabello and Movement Voter Fund's uh, Healing Justice Project this year. In addition, we are trained and certified through the Set Me Free Project, which is sex trafficking prevention. We are also a chapter lead with the Malika Organization, which is an organization by black and brown women building power in their own communities. We have taken all of these tools and indigenized them for our native women and girls in, our, in my community um, so that they can build confidence and power within their own communities. And this is in Sioux City that we do yes. a lot of this work, Sioux City, Iowa and then also the Winnebago Nation. Yep, and the Omaha. Uh, I'd like to extend that out to the Ponca and the Santee Sioux. Uh, I also work with Dr. Belinda Creighton-Smith at, at the University of Northern Iowa each fall and spring semester since 2020. I present to her class and work with her students who choose to do their final class projects on MMIW, MMIR. This year is the first time on campus in which we will be 
partnering with Sunrose Iron Shell to screen Women of the White Buffalo documentary and hold a, pa hold a panel. We have also extended that, uh, our work and our efforts to the Western Iowa Tech Community College in Sioux City, Iowa. I work with, the, I work with community and tribal leaders to help raise awareness. Um, this year, Mayor Bob Scott of Sioux City signed the first MMIW proclamation in the state of Iowa in which I was able to receive and make public a public statement as the native representative of Sioux City's first inclusive committee. I have taught myself to film in order to help families get their stories out and ask, uh, ask for help by utilizing our platform. I have literally run alongside others 90 miles from Fremont, Nebraska to the Nebraska State Capitol to raise awareness on MMIW. I could go on, but shameless plug, uh, go visit uh, greatplainsaction.org and you can see all of the positive uh, impacts that we are doing in regards to MMIW. Um, I want to add that Trisha hasn't even <clears throat> told you the bulk of what we, like there's so much more. Um, we have um, a mutual aid effort in Sioux City um, because the, the houseless uh, population, um, so let me just say this. So, uh, indigenous people make up about 2% of Sioux City, but they make up 45 to 63% of the houseless population. I think it's higher, actually. 40, it, yeah, I think it's higher. Okay, yep. well, the, the study that um, was done recently, recently, well, a few years ago, mm -hmm. was 45 to 63%. It might have gone higher at that point. Um, and so we, we do a lot of mutual aid efforts for that reason. The, the reason why Indigenous women, and it's not, by the way, just Indigenous, we, we actually use the term relatives um, to be inclusive, but also our men have exceedingly high rates um, of violence that they're facing. But that particular issue has no statistics, no information at all, really. Um, and so um, Trisha also regularly um, hosts, you know, uh, events just uh, to bring the community together um, and, um, you know, just raise awareness um, about not just the missing and murdered Indigenous women's crisis, but political aspects of the work, like like what's happening in the world. Um, how does the, uh, um, the decision to turn over Roe affect Indigenous women? Because it affects us at a, it's a long story, I won't get into it, <laughs> but it affects us in um, a lot of other ways as well. Um, and so Trisha does a lot of that work. Um, in Sioux City and Omaha, Nebraska, uh, you know, uh, Winnebago nations, um, across, you know, Iowa, um, even into South Dakota. And, um, you know, again, nationally, we're, we're in some national cohorts uh, trying to raise awareness uh, with other Indigenous women across the country. Um, so the... Um, oh, thank you. No. <laughs> the next question um, is for Shelly because... Um, I'm really glad Shelly could make um, this panel t today because I think that um, Shelly um, is one of those uh, amazing food stewards uh, first, that has just so much first food knowledge um, and uh, traditional ecological knowledge, which is why Project Drawdown says that giving land to women is going to change the world, is going to curb the climate crisis. And so... Um, that's why we need to continue to do, um, to heal the community, right? So we can get more folks uh, doing what Shelly does. Um, and so 
Shelly, you are a first food first foods expert and um, a land steward expert, and I know you have had little to no access to land, and that getting land back would obviously be a healing experience for you. Um, can you tell us how that would feel to have that access, and what would you do with that land? Well, um, like I do, I do want to kind of digress from that question because there's one thing that I really want to put in perspective for everybody. So. Um, Actually, the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis started 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so targeting women uh, was an intentional policy of colonization because um, indigenous women um, are the land, right? Um, the, we, that is our realm. Uh, that is what we are most connected to, the land and the water. And because, you know, this is where we are, you know, grow and gather all of our foods to feed our communities with. Also, um, indigenous women are at the heart of um, tribal economies. And so the, um, so that type of like powerful, powerful connection to the land, as well as the heart of, of um, the economic um, uh, health, of any type of community system was the reason that the colonizers very specifically targeted women. Very specific. And so this is hundreds of years of missing and murdered indigenous women and of having incredible rates of violence um, targeted at us. And um, for us Meskwaki, um, I, I sit down and chat with our tribal historian, Jonathan Buffalo, quite a bit. And he said, he said, uh, so when the Meskwaki were first, um, were first negotiating uh, trade with the French, there was, you know, these meetings, right, these gatherings. And um, in one particular early gathering, the commandant, um, he was asking of the Meskwaki um, some, um, you know, uh, give us this, you know, chunk of land in order to set up shop, basically, and you will get this, you know, all of these trade goods or, you know, a part of the deal, right, a part of the cut from the trade. And so the Meskwaki land, and, and you know, it, it, natives love trade. You know, we had trade routes prior to colonization that stretched from the Arctic all the way to you know, the Yucatan and, and further, um, you know, east and west, you know, there's archaeological evidence that shows that, um, if you need that evidence. And so we love trade. And of course, it's like, yes, you know, you've got great stuff, um, including the women, you know, they definitely enjoyed a lot of the, the trade items um, from that was coming from Europe. And um, so we were open to it. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that the men listened to the French, and they they said, "Well, uh, before we respond to you, we're going to go home and ask our women." The French commandant, he's like, ah, 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 "Ask your women, ask your women. You might as well consult with these hens pecking in the yard." So that illustrates just the constant, intentional <coughs> demeaning and objectification of indigenous women. That was repeated thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. 
It's time for that to stop, really. So what would I it. do if I had a chunk of land? <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, first and foremost, I, you know, I would rematriate my ancestral seeds to that land. I would work on rematriating the ecology of that land to the best of my ability. And of course, I would need a lot of help to do that. Um, and there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, I would build an incubator farm so that regenerative agriculture practices could be, you know, so that students could come, native students could come and learn these practices, and then we, you know, they could set up their own operations. But that also would require increased access to land um, for all of these growers. There's many, many people that want to grow. Um, I think one of the most important things that we need is we need uh, healing centers. So, you know, part of that, Part of that um, being on the land is not only would be working and growing food and, and you know, um, spreading you know, these practices, but it would also be teaching people how to take care of themselves, providing safe, loving, quiet, connected spaces for healing. And that's really, that's, that's what seed rematriation and um, working with my ancestral foods has done for me. You know, my father is a survivor of boarding school. He was beaten as a child for speaking his language. So I'm a language learner now because my dad didn't teach, teach me my language, right? He thought that he was protecting me from violence, and indeed he was. Um, I don't know how many times, you know, um, people have commented on how articulate I was, and it's just like, well, it's because I... Um, you know, my, my father encouraged us to have a, you know, a, a very firm grasp of English so that we could navigate the colonized world. Um, but it's, it's hurts me to my core that, um, that I didn't grow up speaking my language. One thing about it is when that I started working in seed rematriation and I had my ancestral seeds in my hands, I realized that I had a connection to my grandmothers going back generations. You know, our Meskwaki corn, our Tama Flint corn, we've had for three to 4,000 years. That's many generations, generations long, long before colonization. And that connection gave me the strength to, to go into adult learners class, which is very humbling, by the way, because um, you really do start at a, a toddler level Right, But that connection, there is no language barrier. And that's what I want to propagate. That's what I want to grow and share with my community, and especially in a healing way. Thank you. So this is why we need um, more, we need help ending the missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis, because do, do you see that we could have more Shelleys in the world, you know, right. people with that knowledge? We can't, we, we, so many of our women don't get there. They're never going to sit here. They're never going to be um, able to, you know, even 
comprehend some of these concepts because they're living um, in like abject poverty in serious, you know, um, violence. And so, um, you know, I, there's one thing I, I didn't mention because we don't have all day, right? But like boarding schools, um, residential schools, they're called residential schools in Canada. Um, that has had a huge effect on uh, violence to our people. I don't know if you know um, what's been going on in Canada, but they've been uh, uncovering mass, um, I wouldn't even call them graves, but um, places where um, Indigenous children were murdered uh, from the age of, well, infancy, like newborn, uh, to, you know, 18 years old. Um, and these bodies are everywhere. There's thousands of them. Um, my own uh, nation, George Gordon First Nation, uh, was host to the longest-running boarding school in Canada. Um, my aunt went there. Um, my uh, grandmother went there. All my relatives went there. And guess what? My cousins went there. Um, so I, if I had grown up there, I would be one of uh, the people that attended this school. Um, and so I'm saying this because I want you to understand that the genocide and the colonization of our people is like happening right now. Like it's happening within my own generation. I could have attended this school. It was closed down in 1996. Um, and it's where people were beaten um, so they wouldn't speak their language. It's where women uh, and girls obviously um, were taught that they were um, nothing, um, they were they were nothing, you know, like in terms of like how white people view women, um, uh, th that mentality from Europe, that's what was beaten into, um, into our, into our um, communities. So um, I wanted to uh, talk to both Trish and uh, Shelley about any personal experiences you may have had with the missing murder and indigenous relatives yeah. crisis, you know, in terms of like um, family members or people in your communities that have gone missing, just because I want people to understand um, how close to home this really is. For sure, yeah. Um, my auntie Paulette, Paulette Walker, went missing back in the 80s. Um, the only reason why her body was ever found was because there was a car accident and she just happened to be laying in the ditch next to it. Um, we are still in the process of recovering her body and bringing her back home to our homeland so she can rest uh, right next to her, her father. Uh, however, uh, the COVID pandemic hit and somehow our papers got lost. And so now we have to start the whole process over again. Um, so that's kind of the personal drive of why I put so much energy into this, um, you know, into my work. Uh, the legacy fund that we do helps families uh, during their grief process or grieving process to help uh, with their healing justice journey. Uh, that legacy fund has helped uh, five families, uh, and this basically is to help uh, deter any financial barriers that they that they encounter. So we have uh, one family that was coming from Wisconsin and traveling to Omaha, Nebraska, because that's where you know in the state of Nebraska that's where the crime took place. However, when you don't have the financial resources to go and sit in a courtroom for your loved one that can no longer sit here. Um, that is a real thing. That is a reality for our Native communities. So we, that's what we do. We, we help and make sure that they are there and they're present and that we can make sure that they 
are getting, they demand justice for their family members that have gone missing and murdered. Um, we even provide um, childcare um, mm -hmm. funds for um, memorials. Yep. Um, Jeez, I think a recent, the most recent thing that we have done is uh, we've uh, bought, you know, refreshments. Uh, there is a Winnebago woman who is uh, missing right now. Yeah. Uh, and we are helping to print flyers, uh, do whatever we need to do, basically. Because, again, when you are, uh, you know, you're in survival mode, you don't have those resources available to you. And so that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure we have the proactive solution to do that. When she um, talks about refreshments, she means like for the search. Oh, yes. <laughs> the when search we're done that searching. just took place two weeks yep. ago. Um, thank you, Trisha. Yes. And um, can you tell us a little about what's um, been going on um, for years at uh, Meskwaki? Yeah, are you connected to the Wi-Fi? Um, can you look up the stats on Rita? Because I can't. So one of our community members, Rita Papaki, went missing. I think it's like, um, um, I think it's going you know, it's, it's like starting to six years. years. It's yeah, it's starting to close in on ten years, and um, so she she was last seen um, leaving the casino. We have a casino um, on our um, settlement um, that is right on Highway Thirty. Uh, Highway Thirty is the old Lincoln Highway, so it was one of the main, and it still is. It's a huge amount of traffic goes through there. Um, but um, yeah, she was just seen leaving the front entrance and she was never seen again. She yeah. was uh, 41 years old uh, and vanished January 16th, 2015. Yeah, 41 years old. Um, and it's interesting because a few years back there was a young white woman that went missing um, in the county just south of us, very close by. Um, and um, she... <laughs> It's her, and she, okay, uh, the, the young white woman that went missing, um, she was young, white. She was also very, you know, athletic, athletically fit and pretty. So I think, like, you know, for women in the United States and Canada, you know, that's like, um, uh, that's what uh, we're valued on, right? And... Um, and so um, the, the press, it not only made it, you know, immediately to all of the Iowa press, but it made it national news. In fact, um, Donald Trump spoke her name. Of course, he spoke her name in order to um, make a racist case against immigrants, because ultimately an immigrant had been um, arrested and convicted of her murder. But her body was found. Um, you know, the police and and all resources were directed on her case, and so the body was found. Um, her family was able to bury her so that she may rest in peace and at least have closure um, on on um, her murder and begin to heal. Uh, with Rita, there's you know, it's uh, the Meskwaki community um, has regular um, awareness campaigns to raise awareness um, about Rita and, of course, about um, violence against women. Um, they also have raised. Did you see how much money now? Fifty thousand. I saw yeah. on the flyer, but that, maybe that's an old one. Yeah, and but I just realized that it's eleven thirty, so we want to have some time for questions. So yeah, yeah, and I just um, and of course, it's just it's you know, it's still it's you know, is it on the the 
the local news, the state news, let alone the national news, no. So that's like a, a comparison of, you know, the disparity and of how, um, how you know, women are valued and Native women are valued. And I want to say that um, when I was 18, I was kidnapped by three um, white teenagers and beaten. I was taken to a road south of town, and, um, and um, they had me in the middle of the road and was kicking me in the head and face. And it's just so happened that one of my cousins, uh, who was in... Um, a rock country rock band, a uh, very popular guy. Anyway, he <laughs> he was driving back um, um, back to town from his girlfriend's house in the middle of the night, and he just saw a native being had, having the kick, shit kicked out of him in the middle of the road, and he stopped. The teenagers ran off, and then and he was shocked to see it was me because he thought like Shelly, what the hell, you know, like he never expected it because I was I you know. I wasn't a party girl or anything like that. But like, you know, this stuff just happens, right? You know, I thought I could trust these kids. I thought they were my friends, and that's how that happened. And and I have to say, I had always been a wily, 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 wily girl. Like, I, I had car, cars follow me. I used to run all of the time on the road, on the railroad tracks. I just run, 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 run. But I was very careful. You know, because I did have cars follow me, and I would just jet off through the woods or the field so that I wouldn't be grabbed in that car. But in this incident, I thought that these were people I knew, and I thought I could trust them. So um, it happens, and it happens, you know, you think it's like, oh, she must have been a drug addict or this or that. No, it, it can just happen out of the blue. Thank you so much for telling that story. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so... You know, all of us here have had these firsthand experiences, like just right here on the stage. Um, and that's how severe this uh, crisis is. Um, and I want to I wanna just ask ahead, our last yeah. question to Trish. Um, and we'll make it quick because yep. we, well, we want some time for questions. Um, what do you need to keep going with the work you're doing? Invest in Native women and girls. Uh, we need Native and non-Native allies, funders, investors, and philanthropists to fund our work, uh, which also includes <laughs> capacity building, space, ongoing support, resources, and wellness. Um, if we can take care of those basic needs first, then we can get to the fights against big A, climate, crisis, um, legislation, and racial and gender inequities. Once we get out of survival mode, then we can start Burning it all down. No. <laughs> well, Perfect honestly, way to right. end this. Thank you so much, Trish. Yes. yes. Um, so I'd like to open up um, the. Uh, and I wanted to say something really quick. Is like once we get out of survival mode, what what you know we have like just um, this incredible like ability to rebuild our local economies. Mm -hmm. You yes. know, yeah. and um, because that's what we do. Because we're the walking embodiment of a social impact strategy. Not sure if I need a mic, but um, in terms of investment, could you just go deeper? Um, I know I work with small businesses in Metro Atlanta, and for us, it's just funding like that friends and family gap, which is like really up to like five thousand dollars. So those are really that's really small amounts of money for for some people, but really great for mm -hmm. others. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit more to like, like what. What yeah. we, how much, and like, how much? I, yeah, if let me tell you, just yeah. capital, or if it's what, I, and how people can really like find you and 
and make sure they're actually like meeting you where you're or yeah. in your communities. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm the fundraiser um, in our organization. I'm the executive director. Um, I spend a lot of time writing grants uh, and um, to keep like our Protect the Sacred program growing, which uh, going, which Trish uh, leads, um, you know, um, it costs like not that much really, but like it doesn't cost that much because we are, we never expected much. But like now I'm sitting here saying we could use millions of dollars, right? But, you know, we, I, we pay Trish a living wage, of course. Um, she's a single mother of three. And then we also um, spend, you know, about 50000 a year um, on the, product, the, the, the initiative itself, our Protect the Sacred initiative. Um, but I would like to spend, you know, $250,000 a year. Um, I would like to uh, get a space for, um, for us to work out of in Sioux City. Um, there's no cultural community space um, that's fit. There's one urban native center, but it is so tiny and it's falling apart, um, like, and literally. Uh, and um, so we need space, right? So that's the kind of um, investments we would need. And then also I want to say, like, like Shelly is up here as well, um, and Shelly could use some land back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so. and also um, I have to say too, like, you know, $5,000 does make a huge impact. $5,000 can provide um, shelter and, and ultimately housing to a woman and her children who is leaving an abusive relationship, mm -hmm. right, or who has lost her job. You know, all of these different situations. I've, I've been really fortunate to have had a network, you know, so that <clears throat> when I didn't have my own home, I was able to have a temporary home somewhere um, with friends or family. You know, and that's really important because, like, once you do end up unhomed um, with, as a woman with your children, it's, this is like, this is when, um, um, you know, this family is in a very perilous situation. So, um, you know, those gifts of $5,000 um, from the smaller organization and smaller grassroots efforts add up, you know, that does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It really does. And of course, technical assistance, even somebody who is a yoga instructor and able to have space to, you know, let's say that, you know, we, we are able to fund, um, you know, a temporary housing for women and their children, and that we have a yoga instructor that comes in every morning and walks them through a 20-minute routine to help them self-regulate, right? Mm -hmm. I know how it is to feel unsafe in my body, you know, because I've been in survival mode for a long, long time. Yoga helps. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Did you want to say something? Yes. Yes. Um, and I just want to say, like, investing, I, I would like to see our, our Native girls and women uh, pursue business career paths, you know, get themselves out of the survival mode and be thriving. Um, my, my goal is to uh, having a, a healing and arts center uh, where we can do all these things. And, you know, it's, it's a positive, you know, just a positive envir environment. So we've been taking a very proactive approach to this crisis um, rather than reactive. Yeah. Um, it, it's been reactive for a long time. Yeah. But like our whole goal um, is to um, make people less vulnerable mm -hmm. because that's really um, 
how people end up going missing and murdered because of the vulnerabilities um, that genocide and colonization has created. It's created um, sickness. You know what I mean? Like, just sickness. Um, and when I say sickness, I mean, like, the, the colonial sickness. That isn't everybody. Mm -hmm. So I would say just, uh, first of all, thank you to all you beautiful ladies. Um, I think it's really important as an indigenous woman um, who likes Kaos is also an executive director um, for a Native community. And in the importance of, and I also went to boarding school at Riverside Indian School in Oklahoma. So not only are you staring at survivors of modern day genocide, you're staring at resiliency and what Native women really are as mm -hmm. matriarchal um, figures for not just our families, but for our communities. But what that looks like um, for me in this crisis, I live in Chicago and it's one of the largest human trafficking hubs in the country and nobody ever hears about the missing women that come through Chicago from several different places and into places like Tama, into places um, like Oklahoma and Montana. When we talk about investment into community, um, what I think is important to know is, is like she said, it's important to be reactive. And what that looks like if you have a native community center, a native art center, a native anything in your community, it is so important to really invest those dollars, that true impact investment, investment, investing that we're talking about here, that social capital that we're all here to do, the purpose of your why, why you're here, that's exactly why they're sitting up there. That's exactly why I'm sitting here. It's to tell folks that don't necessarily know the history, but now when you know it, you have a responsibility to act. You have a responsibility to invest. $5,000 is a lot for some of these businesses and organizations, and we think about investing in the entrepreneurship, but if you're investing into communities in larger dollar amounts, what you're creating is not just revenue and an ROI on your investment, you're saving communities in a way that flourish. We have a responsibility to pave the way out for our young women, but also for our children and our youth. But as Native folks and as investors, as humanity, we have a responsibility to pave the way back in. And we can't pave it back in without funds. And those funds sometimes don't look the same as investing in a tech company or you know, one specific artist, but they do when you collectively add it to a community. And I think the work that they're doing speaks that those volumes. And so I just kind of want to put that out there to investors that Native communities are tired of being the micro minority, which is a double asterisk at the bottom of the page of a footnote in the back of the book. We're tired of those statistics because they don't get heard enough. Mm -hmm. And once they are heard, you now are responsible for knowing that knowledge and not acting. And I want to so say much. something um, we that have a, oh, I want to just say about survivors. I don't consider myself a survivor. I'm a warrior. Mm -hmm. And that's because I've worked hard to change the narrative on that mm -hmm. and empower myself. So I didn't survive anything. I fought my way through it. Exactly. Know? I like that. That's a good way <laughs> to end. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you're inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved in the Soak Up community, join us at Soak Up 23 this October in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, MONEYMEANING23. Register at SoakUpGlobal.com. 
We look forward to seeing you in October and be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcast to be notified of your next episode's release.